Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. Hello, old sports. Welcome back to the Hello, Old Sports podcast here on the Sports History Network. This is Dan Newman, and I would like to welcome you and thank you once again for joining us into our weekly travel back into the history of sports. I am joined, as always, by my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you today? I'm all right, Dan. Kind of when we started this, we made it a point that, you know, we didn't want this to be a, an echo chamber and just sort of only wanting to hear viewpoints that we agree with or appreciate or even respect. So I understand what we're doing tonight. Um, I understand why it's necessary. I've, I'm trying to keep an, an open mind for the good of the show. Um, I certainly don't support the Nets. I don't, I don't respect them. I, uh, I personally find them offensive, but will you know enter things with the spirit of charity it is after all april i don't know what that means but um <laughs> yes no my uh my issues are far more with the current nets than the nets that we'll be talking about tonight so i i'm doing well good to hear so um, before we begin, just a quick reminder to everybody, please follow us on iTunes, give the show a rating, leave us a comment. If you want to engage with us on social media, you can find us at Hello Old Sports Podcast. You can email the show at HelloOldSports at gmail.com. You can also check us out on the, leave a comment on the Sports History Network website. Uh, we've put through, we've gotten requests for an episode on the 1959 Go-Go White Sox uh, from a listener. So we'd like to thank you for suggesting that. And that's something you can expect, uh, you know, at some point in the spring, most likely. Encourage you also to listen to the other great shows on the Sports History Network, football, baseball, basketball. We're adding new shows every couple of weeks. So give us a listen on there. Andrew and I guested on some different shows uh, throughout the last few months. So we've enjoyed that. All right. Well, tonight's show is about sort of the stepchild of the New York NBA scene. New York Nets became the New Jersey Nets, who then became the Brooklyn Nets and were almost the New Jersey Swamp Rays for a brief period of time. And uh, Swamp Dragons. Swamp, Swamp Dragons. Dragons. Yeah. I'm sorry. Swamp Dragons. You may have heard an extra voice there. We have with us today my good friend and Nets fan, uh, New Jersey native Abe Evans L. Abe, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, yes, no problem. When you reached out to me and said, hey, we're going to do an episode on the New Jersey Nets, I was like, oh boy, do I have something to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> We want to kind of talk about, obviously talking about the whole history of the franchise would be long. And even though we go long here, that would be a little too long. Andrew and I talked a decent amount, or at least some, about the... We've talked about the the sort of the New York version of the Nets a few times through when, when different topics have come up, whether it was mm-hmm. when we did our all-time NBA starting fives, whether it was when we did the very first episode and we talked about the Mount Rushmore of, of sports and we talked about you know, Dr. J, among others, who might fit in on the basketball side of that. So... 
we've talked a little bit about the early days of the Nets, and uh, this will likely air sometime in early May. By this, by that point, the NBA playoffs will be heating up. And Andrew, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, the NBA season, the NBA season goes until May 16th this year. So. No, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. They're screwed. They're on that screwy schedule this year. My editing is going slowing, but not that slowly. So hopefully by the, <laughs> the first week of May, we'll have this up. I've heard his voice a couple of times. So let me formally say hello and welcome our guest. Abe, thanks again for doing this. Oh, yes. Thanks for having me. This is uh, this is exciting. As I, I told my wife, I'm doing a podcast tonight. And she was like, you're doing what? And it's like, <laughs> you know, go, go talk sports with the Newmans. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That was actually uh, one of our one of our potential names was talking sports with the Newmans or like Newman old sports or something. So we, we got a little we got a little more generic. So before we turn it over to Abe and before we kind of get started here, I I remember sort of a couple things really quick about the Nets from sort of the late '80s, early '90s. The first season I really got into the Knicks was '88, '89. The Knicks played basically every game on MSG Network, and the Nets played every game on Sports Channel, which was this uh, the other station. And for whatever reason, we didn't get Sports Channel at our house. I don't know whether it was a different package or whether it was just, you know, we couldn't get it there at all. But so I remember, you know, as my little six-year-old self, there was one Nick game where they played the Nets and the game was on Sports Channel. And I could not comprehend why you know, the Knicks were not on their normal channel. And my dad kind of had to explain to me like, well, you know, the Nets, they're technically considered a, a New York team also. And then all I remember is that the Knicks lost that game to the Nets by like 20 points. And my dad just saying to me, they shouldn't be losing to the Nets. The Nets stink. And it was just, and I remember those were the teams of sort of Buck Williams and Dennis Hobson and Lester Connor. And these were kind of the, the, the late 80s when they still had the red, white and blue jerseys. So oh, those were great jerseys. Yeah, and they've gone back to them once in a while as like a throwback type of thing, even since they've been in Brooklyn. But yeah, those were great. And then it's sort of, I think where we want to pick this up is, you know, with, with kind of the, the 90s team, sort of the teams immediately following those teams. So Abe, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background with the team and, and how you became a Nets fan growing up? Oh yeah, this is kind of completely random. I was born in Chicago. I moved to Richmond when I was like in the first or second grade, right? And I lived there for a few years. And then we moved to New Jersey. Before I moved to New Jersey, was, wasn't a follower of basketball at all, right? I followed baseball. I was a sort of a, a closet a Braves fan because that was what the local, really the local team for Richmond was the Braves. It was the closest team. It was mm-hmm. on TV all the time. So yep. watched a ton of great pitching in the, uh, in the <laughs> mid-90s, right? Really exciting stuff. But uh, never really watched a ton of basketball. Then I moved to Jersey and especially I, mean, I moved to early to New Jersey, which is right next to Newark, New Jersey, which is a short trade right away from New York, a big basketball sort of area, right? All the kids sort of played basketball, you know, were super into basketball. And I was like, well, okay, there's something here. I'll watch the basketball, but there's a local team. Why don't I, uh, why don't I just watch the Nets? As, as you're a kid, you're in your formative years and you're like, oh, I live in a state with a basketball team. I'm a fan of this team. And this is before I knew anything really about the Nets. And, you know, come to find out, they just suck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and not and not like in a, oh, there's a plan here. In just an aimless, aimless way, they were just bad. And then they would occasionally become kind of okay. And then they would be bad again. And they would... 
right, they would make the wrong hires, they would draft the wrong people, uh, someone would get hurt, and it would just be year after year of sucktitude. After a while, right, I went away to college, you know, in the early 2000s, and I was like, oh, I'm still a Nets fan. This is, this is, this is, ter-. like, there were some good games, but there were also a lot of bad ones. And then eventually, right, when I moved to D.C., I was like, all right, not only are the Nets no longer in New Jersey, I'm no longer in New Jersey, so I'm going to break free from that. But they still hold a place in my heart, especially those, especially when I think back to those mid-90s teams of, like, you know, Kerry Kittles, Keith Van Horn, terrible draft picks like Yigadare, who I still can't believe they drafted. He played, what, 13 games from or something? I think I have, like, 12 of his rookie cards in the closet here. (laughs) One for each game. One for each game, exactly. So, and, you know, the funny thing is, I've only been to the Meadowlands once. Like, I feel like me and a friend of mine, like, my mom got us tickets. They were, like, $4 a piece. It probably cost more in gas to get us there than it did to actually get into the arena. And we're sitting behind the the basket, and, you know, the stadium is not even half full. And, like, I just remember, I'm super excited because, you know, I'm 14 or something. But... Like it was as the game went on and as they were losing, I was like, this is, I don't think I want to do this again. And so (laughs) just never, never went back. You know, that was actually, uh, Andrew, I don't know if you remember this. That was the first, the first NBA game that we went to was the Nets. And I think it was Sacramento in like 1994 or 1995 or something like that. It was Sacramento. And I've looked up exactly what game it was before. I'm not going to do that right now. If they played the Kings, and the only thing I really remember about the game, it, that was the Kings era of like Derek Coleman and Kenny Anderson, but I feel like at least one of them didn't play that night. And then the only thing I remember really about the game is that was when the Kings had Bobby Hurley, and he had gotten into a, a car accident or like a bad accident the year mm-hmm. before. And it wasn't his first game back, but it was like one of his early games back. So the crowd gave him a nice hand. When that's I'll just kind of, you know, I'd written some stuff out because I wasn't sure exactly where we were going to start. But like, okay, the Nets, you know, they start, they kind of bounced around Long Island, settled in the Coliseum. Then for a while, they were playing at Rutgers in the late 70s, early 80s. Early 80s, they settled at what was then Meadowlands Arena, Brendan Byrne Arena, Continental Airlines Arena, finally ended up as the IZOD Center, and now is just a building that is a ghost town, essentially. They haven't knocked it. You know, I think the real inflection point for the Nets was just when they entered the NBA, getting hammered so much by the financial dealings of what they owed the Knicks for, quote unquote, invading their turf. They had to sell Dr. J. And really, you know, the era we're talking about now, between 1976 and 2002, they only got out of the first round of the playoffs once. So, you know, when we're talking the late 80s, early 90s as a background, They'd have some sort of flare-ups. They hired Chuck Daly, who had very recently been the coach of those Pistons teams. Mm-hmm. They get a six seed the one year. They lose in five games. But then right after that, Drazen Petrovic is uh, killed in the offseason. You know, to mention what you mentioned with Continental Airlines Arena, just to, to sort of bring it full circle for, for anyone who doesn't know, although I think most people are vaguely aware of this at least. So the Nets forever played in the same parking lot, essentially, as where Giant Stadium is. Yep. At and how would that life is it was the you know the devils and, and nets both played there and again i think most people are familiar with this if you're from the northeast if you've ever been to the new york area it is right off the highway off the you're off the uh, jersey turnpike 
but it's not there w- there's no public transportation there definitely wasn't then now there's there's some, tra- there's some trains on you know sunday afternoon for giants games or in jet games but even those are limited it wasn't an easy place to get to on a weeknight. You know, it was one thing to get there at 830 in the morning for a football game and spend all day and drive and tailgate. If you're trying to go to Nets and, you know, the, the Bullets in 1991 on a Thursday night and deal with New York City traffic for the privilege of doing it, it's a lot to ask, especially if the team is ghastly which yeah. a lot of times they were. So yes. you know, I know we're, we're talking about the Nets, but even those years when the Devils were a dynasty, the Devils were winning cups every year, or not every year, but the Devils were in the at least the Eastern Conference Finals every year. They won three Stanley Cups. Their attendance still stunk because it just that wasn't a building you wanted to go to on a weeknight and deal with all of that. So just, again, I know a lot of people know that, but I figured I would just kind of set the stage of just how... It was in the New York metropolitan area, but it wasn't easy to get to. So it wasn't really a New York team in terms of being on the transportation hub. So, yeah, no, yeah. I think it's a good point. So, so Abe, you started sort of in the mid nineties, right? You said like yep. the Kittles Van Horn years. Yeah. Maybe before that, right. I didn't get into, like I was, I became very aware of the team, right. With the Kittles, with Kittles and Van Horn, especially because at the time I feel like every time the tournament rolled around, every time the NCAA tournament rolled around, right. Rutgers was still decent around then. So was Seton hall. So there was always buzz about, Oh, this player out of one of these colleges, the other, they'll, they'll draft a local kid and right. They'll bring the nets, you know, some glory. So around that time, yeah, that's when I really sort of started becoming aware of it. I mean, I was around for the Kenny Anderson sort of Ed O'Bannon times, but those, you know, those weren't, uh, those weren't great teams. Derek Coleman was okay. Right. They were good, but never, Never good enough. They never made it out of the first round. I think that I think Andrew made the point. Having Chuck Daly, I think, really did something. It kind of drove them up a little bit in the New York consciousness just because of who he was. And it was also this strange kind of thing where you had Riley with the Knicks, and then right around the same time you had Daly with the Nets. And I think a couple of times they they played in the playoffs. At least once, I think the year that the Knicks won the, the the year the Knicks made the finals, they played the Nets in the first round. I'm looking here at the daily years. Did Daly only coach the team for two years? I guess he only two coached years. Them. Yeah. So he was he was they lost to Cleveland in the first round in '93, five game series. They lost three to two, so they almost moved on. Mm-hmm. There, they were 43 and 39, and then they were 45 and 37 the following year. That's not a bad record, and then. Daly was gone after that year, and then that was the beginning of the Butch Beard era, which went on. I don't on. even remember that name. I, I honestly don't even remember that Butch Beard coached the, coached the team. I remember John Calipari, who came after him. I do not remember Butch Beard at all. I looked this up, and I was like, who the hell is this guy? I have no idea who this is. Yeah, I only have sort of vague recollections of it myself, but... Yeah, he was, you know, then those those teams were not good. The Anderson-Coleman teams were kind of fun, and people, Petrovich was that kind of guy, but I also think you're yeah. right. I think that the the Petrovich death really kind of took, oh, took everything out of it. He was a genuinely talented, he was he was really, 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 really good. And, uh, right, it's not like, to, it's not like you get a, hell, what do you even do when, like, your best player dies? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no rules for that, at least not then. There might be some now. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think also, I think it was interesting thing about Petrovic too, is that the, the international thing was just started getting started as far as, you know, there's these European, you know, Eastern European guys. I mean, you had Divac and then, you know, Petrovic was kind of the other one at that point. It was really just, you know, those were the two sort of, you know, I mean, Sabonis would come over or was going to come over around that time. I can't remember when he actually made his way over, but by that point, his knees were shot by the time he got to the, by the time he got to the, to the NBA, his knees were shot, but I don't remember what year he came over. I think Sabonis was late nineties. Probably all I remember about Sabonis was him going against all those, those Laker teams with Shaq. And that was another one where, you know, this was kind of like before everything was available on on the internet and you just would see Sabonis and he was, you know, He'd mostly just stand out and shoot threes, and he'd, you know, every once in a while he'd like throw a behind the back pass. And I remember just reading one day because I was sixteen or whatever it was. I didn't even know who this guy was, and then all of a sudden you see like, oh yeah, this was one of the best basketball players of all time ten years ago, and it was just hard to hard to wrap your head around the fact that this old kind of broken down center had been this great player. And then after Daly retires, and I don't know what happened. Daly must have just kind of because he he coached in Orlando. After that, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Daly. Uh, let's see. Yeah, he did. Actually, he came back in 97. So that must have been one of those situations where he thought he was done. He thought he was too old, but then he, he got bit by the bug and he wanted to come back. So, yeah. so they go. And then after this was kind of when they had sort of the down years, the 94, 95, 95, 96. And then Abe mentioned their, their legendary drafting and, this was kind of about when, when some of this, starting in like 93, they drafted Rex Walters and then Yinka Dare. Oh, and just I, a terrible pick. I, I, when you think bad NBA picks, you think, I think Yinka Dare, most, and, because, and I'll tell you this, because not because he was, it'd be one thing if he was a foreign player who never came over, right? Because that's just like, a, oh, we thought we had a guy who was mm-hmm. really great and in Europe and he just wouldn't come over. The buddy wasn't right or whatnot, right? This was a legit, he played in college for, I want to say three or four years and he was awful in college. <laughs> and they drafted him anyway. <laughs> and so, then lo and behold, he was terrible in the NBA. So there's a few things about Yinkadare. Um, he actually he was a local boy, local to, to you and I, Abe. He played yeah. his college ball at GW. Um, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, played his college ball at GW. And if you go to his basketball reference page, you know how they have, and Andrew and I have had fun with this a little bit in, in the past, where like sometimes the guy's nicknames will be in parentheses. Oh, dude, I know what his nickname is. It's Yinka, it's Yinka the Stinker. Yinkadare. <laughs> Yinkadare. <laughs> What was the one that we had a couple? What was the one a couple? Uh, oh, it was uh, Kyrie Irving. Speaking of Nets, wait, Kyrie Irving has a nickname that's not like Mind's Eye or uh... his. There was a player on the Sixers in the seventies, I think, and his name was Lloyd Free. No, it's two oh, different yeah, guys. Be, it's a, wait, that's World Be Free, yeah. or is that someone? Yeah, Lloyd Free and World Be Free are two different guys. No, World oh, Be no Free kidding. Oh, name, okay. No, World Be Free was his actual name. But he, that wasn't his original name. I'm anyway. Well, no, it, a, yeah, <laughs> I think World Be Free call, and Lloyd. They call Kyrie Irving the nickname on the website is World Be Flat. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever correct me again. World Be Free, uh, bo- point, born Lloyd Bernard Free. Oh, was I was I wrong about that? Yes. Well, I mean, unless there was two Lloyd B. Freeze and one of them changed their name to, Boy- to World B. Freeze. 
<laughs> I thought Lloyd that Free, to be true. I thought Lloyd Free and World <laughs> and Be Free were two different guys. No, they he changed his name. Oh, I, I thought it was two different guys. On December 8, 1981, a day before his 28th birthday, he immediately changed his first name to World. The fellas back in Brownsville gave me the nickname World when I was in junior high. They just started me calling me All World, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought he had a brother, and the brother was Lloyd, and he was World Be Free. No, I was wrong. That's well, back uh, in the day where you could just like sign a form and your name was changed. Boom. No problem. <laughs> Speaking of back in the day, prior to the internet, we would just argue about this for three more years. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just knowing the answer. <laughs> so, the, and the other thing about Yinkadari, first of all, I remember him being in one commercial for like... It vaguely sounds familiar. Long distance. <laughs> was long he like dis- an MCI commercial? Yeah, it was something like that. It was... And I, I, all I remember is he was he was sniffing a flower in part of it, like laying on a bed in pajamas, like sniffing a. This like sounds a, like this. This sounds very, very, very familiar. Oh uh, no! It was a Puma. Maybe it was a Puma commercial. <laughs> uh, well, I, well, maybe we'll try and throw that in the show notes. But the other thing that was weird about him was that he he went through basically a whole like the he didn't have an assist mm-hmm. for like the first three seasons of his career he had in let me pull up his totals here okay his first season he only played one game so whatever that doesn't count and then the second season though he played 58 games and he had zero assists like you'd have to i think just get one by accident like you you'd throw you it to a think. guy and he hits a three right i mean you would think and it's it's well it's crazy. He played fifty eight games. He averaged ten minutes a game. This is a this is a this is a what was he fourteenth pick? Yeah, right. It's just a waste of a. It's just waste of draft capital. And then Ed O'Bannon was the other one in ninety five. That I remember when they made that pick. That was supposed to because you know he was a guy you know. Star, he was a great college player. Great UCLA, UCLA player. Yeah. For those who who don't know. If you enjoyed at one point playing NCAA football or uh, March Madness basketball or any of these video games, you can thank Ed O'Bannon for the fact that you can't play those anymore with real players because he is the one who sued. I guess he sued the NCAA or maybe sued, he the, sued the NCAA. Yeah, and they um, he won the case, and so now that's why you can't have. Well, I guess it used to be like they never used the names, but they would basically put these guys in the video games. Yeah, they were enriching themselves off their likeness while not being it, while making it so that the players couldn't actually get any money. Right? It's basically like, hey, you're amateurs, but we're gonna take your likeness and sell video games with it and pocket the cash. Yeah, it's you know, it's like, you know, who's who's this? You know, who's this number thirty three on UCLA who's seven foot three? Is that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? No, 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 that's not him. You don't see his name anywhere, do you? So, I mean, honestly, the NCAA probably should have lost that suit, but uh, it, it, Ed O'Bannon, and maybe that kind of speaks a little bit to the fact that his legacy as a player was not so great because if he had, if, if Magic Johnson had won that lawsuit, Magic Johnson would still be better known as a player and not as the guy who ruined NCAA video games for a generation. You got to push back on the Ed O'Bannon thing a little bit because that's not what he's trying to do. That's still going on, by the way. He also has got them to rule that the NCAA's practice of barring payments to athletes in violated antitrust rules. And so that's why that's why college athletes are allowed to get stipends now, mm-hmm. allowed to be enticed with stipends, and 
why states like California have passed the law that allows college athletes to receive money for their likenesses. Mm-hmm. He wasn't trying to get them to shut down the NCAA video games. They're, by the way, bringing the football game back. Yeah, you know, I, I, I totally get. No, he's trying to do probably something really, yeah. really good. I would say he's trying to get the players to be able to be compensated for this stuff. Yes, I mean so, but but anyway, I, I know that's neither here nor there. But he's, he's, you know, he wasn't like I don't like this, so nobody can have this game. The NCAA was like, well, if we have to pay somebody, we're just not going to do it. And that's <laughs> yeah, no. Well, no. yes, they're they're in the they're in the uh, the business of not paying their workers. So. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> So yeah, so it's just kind of a kind of a strange time, and then I guess when I remember really things kind of really coming in was I guess when they brought in Marbury. That was when. The, 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 well, I mean, is there anything even to say about the Calipari years? I, I just remember. So I will say this about the Calipari years: I've been looking through sort of these years and. Here's the thing to say about the Calipari years. Don't let John Calipari be your coach and your executive. Just like, don't mm-hmm. do that. Just, just don't. <laughs> Full stop. He was not suited to the NBA. Uh-uh. And you get that in both the NBA and in at the NFL. You get these guys who aren't suited to the pros. But I think Calipari was sort of uniquely ill-suited. Mm-hmm. He just because I, I just remember later on when I mean Rick Pitino kind of came in with to the when when Rick Pitino went to Boston. Oh yeah, I remember those years. <laughs> he'd been decent. He had a couple good years with the Knicks. That was actually that you know that first Nick year that I I remember that I was talking about before. He had some good years with the Knicks, Pitino, and then he you know he'd won in Kentucky, and he was sort of like you know he was established. I remember after Calipari left the Nets and then went on to his successful college coaching career about five years into it, I remember thinking, is that the same clown that was the coach (laughs) of the Nets? Because I just remember him being just nothing but a disaster. And I know he had like, when I say off the court issues, not off the court, like his personal conduct, but I, I know we got into it with reporters and just like he had to apologize for some of the language he used. So this was not a guy who... He didn't even do a halfway decent job. He was just bad. And and you're right, I think, for a guy who'd never been an executive or a NBA coach, they're basically like, well, here you go. It's two for the price of one, right? It's like, wait, we can save a little money by just having the same guy do this, do both of these? Yeah, just giving a guy like that the keys to the store. His first year was 96, 97. I want to see, I guess some of these guys were uh, gone. Coleman was gone. Anderson, Petrovich, obviously, had passed away. Yeah. O'Bannon was there after first year, right? This was the year they drafted Kittles. Mm-hmm. Jim Jack, seriously, Jimmy Jackson was on this team. How do I not remember that? He was written down as sort of the first one. You know, I sort of wrote down like as they assembled what would be the team that mm-hmm. became the team that went to the finals. And I know they were kind of different teams both years, but Kittles was chronologically the first one, and then obviously the next year was, or that off season would have been when they traded or drafted Keith Van Horn, depending on. Yeah. yeah, I think they, well, it was a draft night trade, right? From the 76ers. His rights were immediately traded. So it was probably one of those like they do now where the pick was made, but they couldn't announce the trade yet. Yeah. So the official trade was rights were immediately traded to New Jersey, along with Michael Cage, Lucius Harris, and Don McClain. Luscious, Lucius. 
Love that guy. <laughs> draft rights to Tim Thomas and Anthony Parker and player contracts of Jim Jackson and Eric Montrose. Oh, there you go. Our guys in that trade. Yeah. <laughs> my main, my, I have two main memories of Lucius Harris. One was going to games, and we can talk when we get there about just how many net games I went to my senior year of high school because it was, it was a lot. And how the announcer used to always just go, Lucius Harris. Mm-hmm. And then in the, in the 0-3 finals, Lucius Harris had broken his nose, and he had one of those, the masks on. Yep. And at some point in one of the games, he, for whatever reason, decided to take his mask off before he went in the game. And so he goes in the game and like 20 seconds later, the Spurs call a timeout. And Bill Walton goes, I think the Spurs were so shocked about Lucius Harris not having his mask that they felt the need to call timeout and regroup. <laughs> and I just, uh, that's a, that's a Bill Walton uh, announcer. Uh, is if I've ever, ever heard one, that's the quality of his announcements, I would say. <laughs> so back to the, the late nineties or the mid to late nineties for a second, I understand why this guy doesn't get talked about as much, but people forget that, in sort of the immediate years prior to Marbury, they had another guy who was kind of a, like a considered sort of an up and coming star. And that was Jason Williams, not to be confused with either the point guard who played for Sacramento and Memphis and later won a championship with the heat or to, with the Jay Williams went to Duke Jay and Williams went to Duke and then tore his knee up on a moped. Mm-hmm. I was actually in Chicago for his the first game uh, when I was in college, I was on the. In, I happened to be in Chicago for a, the weekend when Jay Williams had his first game, and he was he he had he had a really good game in his first game, and all the headlines in the Chicago papers were like, "We had we found our next Jordan," and it didn't really work out that way. But the Nets had the other Jason Williams. Yeah, and I remember this guy. <laughs> I think he made an All Star team in like ninety seven or ninety eight. He was kind of considered sort of like. He was definitely the star of that team for a couple of years. I want to look. When did he? Um, Cause I think it's he, like he joined in 92, 93. Actually. Yeah. He joined in 92, 93, but didn't really. Well, he had like a three year run where he was really, although no, he didn't start. He didn't start until 96, 97. So that would have been, yeah. And he was an all-star in 97, 98. Yeah, he had the one good year, and then I think he he retired. I think injuries really really yeah. did it to him. And he was a native New Yorker too. He was uh, he went to high school. I mean, maybe he wasn't a native New Yorker, but he went to St. John's, mm-hmm. and he went to high school at Christ the King, which is this big, you know, always well known as it's in New York City. It's well known as this big high school basketball school in New York City, sort of historically. So he was kind of a story and he, he was very sort of a personable guy. I remember when I was in high school, I went to a basketball camp and he came and spoke at the basketball camp and, you know, very friendly and, you know, talked to all the kids and made a big show of, he was leaving. He said, you know, I, I had such a good time doing this. I can't, I can't take money for doing this. And so he kind of gave the check back to the, the guy who was running the camp. So, you know, a, a really what seemed like a, a good guy and, Obviously, he first had his career cut short because of injuries, and then he had this incident, I think, in like '02, where I think it was his bodyguard that was killed. It was something really. Oh sort of- yeah, this does that does ring a bell. There was like Read- I don't remember. Yeah, reading up on this during because it's something I hadn't. 
thought of in quite a while. I guess in my head, it had always conflated. I thought he was still playing when this happened. Like, not that he was active at the time, but if you had asked me two weeks ago, I'd have been like, oh, he was out for the season, but he was still on the nets when this happened. But I, I was obviously sort of messing up the timeline because he had been, you know, injuries and cut his career short and he was gone. But yeah, he hadn't been gone that long. He was still very much in the memory of people as New Jersey Nets star Jason Williams. And <laughs> I, I think the, the crux of it was that his limo driver was killed and then there was a uh, an attempted cover-up of it and he ended up obviously facing serious criminal charges. Yeah, because I think it was an accidental discharge of a gun or something and then they tried to they tried to play it like he didn't have... Yeah, it was a whole mess. I remember this playing out. I remember this is really sort of off the it's kind of strange, but I was on the uh, the mock trial team my first couple years at, at Boston University and we had a tournament. You basically had like the one big tournament. There were other little small things, but we had you know, the one big tournament was always like every February. It was at Princeton and it was schools from sort of all over the, the eastern seaboard and our coach was the the law, you know, the pre law dean at BU and he was the kind of guy who you didn't tell him he was wrong about things all that often. Whatever the topic, he knew it. So anyway, we were at this tournament, and he's like, oh, I was hoping to catch up with my friend, you know, whoever, who is the coach of the, I forget what team it was, some team in the New York, New Jersey area, you said, but he ended up having to not be able to come at the last minute because his his client is this basketball player, Jason Williams. And apparently there was some sort of an issue over the weekend with a shooting. And so he couldn't, he couldn't make it to coach's team. And I was like, hmm. and I had, again, you know, pre-smartphone, pre-internet, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I got back to my dorm at the end of the weekend at the, after the tournament. And I looked it up and I was like, oh yeah, no, something, something did happen with Jason Williams. So I, I have this sort of two kind of odd, I, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to call them personal connections, but two sort of, very tangential connections with Jason Williams. So his real, just so we have the facts, right. He was playing with a shotgun while giving a tour of his home. The weapon fired in April of 04. He was acquitted of the more serious charges against him, but the court's jury deadlocked on charges of reckless manslaughter. He was convicted on four counts relating to trying to cover it up. There was an appeals court. He was able to be recharged, et cetera, ended up pleading guilty this was 2010, but this was still going on. Pleaded guilty to aggravated assault, sentenced to five years in prison, parole after 18 months, and apparently he was already in jail for something else at the time. So um, oh, he had a ton. Yeesh. That was the most serious of the issues. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah, and I, I think I, I, I think I heard something about him not that long ago. Something, some, not something negative. I think I something came out like he's you know trying to, you know, make the most of, you know, of his life or, you know, turn his life around or whatever you want to, you want to call it. But I feel like I've heard even not, not all that recently or not all that long ago, I should say something about, oh, he, well, he's in the, he's in the news five, five days ago for participating in a charity pickleball tournament. So, <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I'd like to circle back in a minute to the, I guess the last team he was on, or at least the last team he was on significantly, but 
just to sort of, and I've been trying to look for this because I knew I was pretty sure I was right about this, but Jason Williams actually plays a very, he's not in it, but Jason Williams is mentioned in one of the most famous scenes of the Sopranos of all time. The FBI, it's the, it's an episode in the, I think the second season where Tony has been trying to stay away from his regular haunts. And at the very end of the episode, they're all outside of Satriali's and the FBI comes up and they kind of have like a, a few minutes where they're, you know, they're like just shooting the breeze. Like they're not mobsters and FBI agents. And the FBI agent says to Tony, he says, how about those nets, huh? And then Tony's lighting up a cigar and he says, it's that guy, Williams. That's right. That's right. Now, I'm pretty sure it was after Jason Williams wasn't on the team, but you know that, but the, yeah, I was sort of highlighted that last couple of things in that 97, 98 era. So that 97, 98 team made the playoffs as a six seed, I believe 43 and 39. Their starter lineup was basically Van Horn, Kittles, Jason Williams, Sam Cassell and Kendall Gill. Oh man. And another thing that, that happened in that year that I, I think a lot of times gets Maybe it's a coincidence, but we talked about this a lot, Dan, in our Tampa sports episode. They changed their uniforms. And, you know, they'd been the, the various incarnations of red, white, and blue. Immediately prior to this was kind of the weird, like, gradient blue that I don't think anybody was in love with. The and almost they, like the baby blue, right? Like the super yeah, light. They brought out this kind of new thing where I think their road uniforms for a bunch of years were gray. So they really like only I remember that. white or gray. And it was yeah. a total franchise remodel. And again, sometimes you can overstate it. But like when we did the episode on Tampa sports, Dan, we talked about the Bucks, And it's like, even if you like those creamsicle uniforms, which I do, they'd become, they'd become so synonymous with losing. Mm-hmm. That it was probably necessary for an image makeover. And even though this isn't one that people really remember all that fondly, if they remember it at all, it was probably necessary as part of a franchise that was looking to put the recent past behind them. So I just wanted to mention that 97, 98 team. Oh yeah. Was that around the time? So I'm trying to remember what year it was that they were, they held the, they were holding a contest for like, they were when they were considering the rename, right? When they were basically like, Hey, we're thinking about renaming the nets. And I, cause I remember reading this, I used to get the star ledger paper and used to read it, you know, on the weekends. Cause that was like the local paper mm-hmm. and right. It was, there was articles about, you know, Oh, they're holding like a, right, like you could fill out a form and like mail it in somewhere. Right. Cause this, there was no like website to go to, to vote on back at that time. Cause it was very close. They were going to be the swamp dragons. It was very, very close. And I was like, well, that's dumb. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? I remember being on a trip, going somewhere, coming back from some trip with my family, and my dad had WFAN on, and they gave the the 2020 sports update, and they said, officially announced, the New Jersey Nets have officially announced that they will change their name to the Swamp Dragons in 2000 or whatever, 1997 or whatever it was. I, I never really found out why they abandoned that i mean i, I think everybody mocked them mercilessly and then they were like <laughs> uh all right we have to I, I i honestly i think that was the undertone that i got from that's what i remember of the mm-hmm. time when they announced it because because I, I definitely remember it being a done deal and i even remember it's like seeing the mascot right there was like a it was a logo mock-up yeah the thing it reminds me of is a couple of years before that maybe even a rat might have been right around then the 49ers, the San Francisco 49ers announced they were changing their helmet. And 
whoever it was, Carmen Policy or whoever, actually did a press conference with the new helmet on the table. And you could see pictures of it, but the backlash was so severe that even though they announced it as a done deal, they just quietly backed off of it. And that's similar, I think, to what happened here, which is like, no, this is done. We're going forward. And then it was so negative that it was like, okay, never mind. <laughs> I think when you're the 49ers and you've won five Super Bowls recently at that point, you know, you're talking mid nineties, they, you know, the Montana years were not that long ago. You can do that and just sort of silently back away from it. When you're the Nets and you've been a laughing stock and all of a sudden you want to change your name to the Swamp Dragons, it people, it, it just, it's another reason why people don't take it seriously. Yeah. I'm trying to think who even owned the team back then. That's a good question. I don't know who the yeah. I mean, I don't, who who was the ownership of the team around that time? I don't even know who was. Let me look up here. Who see who the the owners of the of the team were? Ownership. I know now they're kind of partially owned by that whole Yankees Alibaba well, were, guy. Well, the Alibaba guy. Well, they had Pro, they had Prokhorov. Well, Prokhorov sold it to Tony Say. Yes, who is the like the Alibaba CEO or something? I think he still okay. owns the majority of it. Yes, yes, he's, he's the current owner. I honestly, I didn't know how to pronounce his name. I thought it was Sai, but I'm obviously wrong. Although that's not that crazy, Sai, because there's a, a a building at BU that's got that same namesake, T S A I, and they pronounce it Sai. So, if you're looking, I'll just I'm gonna kind of. So I talked about that ninety seven ninety eight team. Then the next year, ninety eight ninety nine, you had Calipari leave. It was replaced by Don Casey. Ah, yes. And then I think the big thing about that year, if we're talking about team building, was that was the year that they traded Sam Cassell for Stephon Marbury. Yeah, those were some. Yeah, I was never a big Stephon Marbury fan. Just didn't really care for him at all. I was just saying, I know during that era, I think the last year he was there, he was known to he was writing all alone on his sneakers at one mm-hmm. point to kind of signify that he was the only guy on a bad team we obviously had some experience with him as as nicks as a yeah later on and, and there was some good there but it was fleeting it's just interesting that marbury was on each end coming to the nets and leaving the nets involved in trades for significant players obviously the later trade is much more important but you know being traded for sam cassell who still after that had tons of good years left in him is is interesting yeah i remember when they had him that was the year and i guess the one thing i think we should mention before we 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 transition right there is right around the same time period i think maybe the season marbury's first year was 98 99 right around that time is also when they hire rod thorne to run the team who if you don't know sort of NBA executives, Rod Thorne is maybe the best NBA executive of all time. He, he's the guy, he's the one who drafted Michael Jordan in 84, been an executive with the league. He was, he's also been heavily involved with USA basketball, but he's best known for, probably for running Knicks in those early years of of the 2000s. And he's the one who makes some of these trades we talk about. We'll talk about in a minute here, but you're right. Marbury was interesting because he was the star. He was an all-star for them in 2000, 2001. And he was kind of bringing a little bit of prominence to the team because Williams was gone. And, you know, it was several years since that Anderson Coleman and I think in some ways he brought attention to the team by being such a malcontent. 
but he really was that last year, especially that all that whole, you know, all alone 33 on the shoes. And I had my friend, Troy, who was a big Nets fan. He and I used to always get in debates because he used to always try and convince me that Marbury was a lot better than, than I thought he actually was. This was the year, this 2000, 2001 that I know Andrew said the year, you know, Marbury doing the team for a couple of years, but Marbury's last year, 2000, 2001, that was the year they drafted Kenyon Martin. And oh yeah, because <laughs> I think Abe, as you sort of alluded to, they had made some bad, some bad, uh, some bad draft choices. Tim Thomas in 1997, who I don't even know, did Tim Thomas ever even play for the Nets? No, he was. I don't know, but my oh, he my, was part, he was part of the Van Horn trade. Yeah, I think my Tim Thomas memories are always well. That guy doesn't care, and then. I would watch teams like pay him seven million, seven, seven years, you know, $120 million contracts. And he would, right. He was the definition of contract year player, right? He would yep. play mm-hmm. awesome in that contract year and then he would get paid and then he would not do anything else again. And then the contract year would come up and he would be awesome. And everybody would be like, Oh, he's really got it. Let's go ahead and give him a long-term deal. And this happened like three or four, I watched this happen literally three or four times. I was like, why are you doing this to yourselves? So they're so bad in 99, 2000 that they end up with the first overall draft pick. And that's when they yeah. draft Kenyon Martin. And that was a big deal. He had been a heck of a player. I believe that the Cincinnati team he was on had gone deep into the, I think they had the gone pretty yeah. deep into the tournament the year before. Um, by, but Martin had broken his leg. That's right. Kenyon Martin yeah. had broken his leg. And then the Nets drafted him anyway, and that was the big question: Is they're drafting this guy with a broken leg? Is he going to be, you know, is he going to be able to be a solid pro, especially as a forward, a guy whose body takes a beating? But he ended up doing pretty well. But the year before that, like I said, or no, that year, I guess that two thousand two thousand and one, that was Martin's rookie year. But that was still Marbury and. All the other pieces had kind of come into place a little bit, Kittles and Van Horn. and But they also, this was the year my friends and I, we were able to get a deal. We were able to get seven games for $60. You guys got robbed. <laughs> but it was cool because you could basically pick the games. Mm-hmm. So we saw San Antonio. We saw Philly, you know, with Iverson. That was the year they went to the finals. That was Iverson's MVP year. We saw the Celtics. Who else did we see? We saw, we saw the Magic with McGrady and Grant Hill, although Grant Hill was probably hurt. Vince Carter and the Raptors, that was another one we saw. So it was a really cool way to go see other teams when the Knicks were in the, you know, they were just at the end of their 10 years of being so dominant that you couldn't get a Knicks ticket for less than $100. But you could go to seven net games and see some of these same opposition teams for less than it would cost for one Nick game. So I took a lot of late night trips to New Jersey <laughs> to and from New Jersey, uh, my, my senior year of high school. And did saw you drive some, out or did you take the bus? Like, how'd you get there? We, we drove my friend, yeah. my friend would drive. Yeah. Okay. This was also a team that had actually, they had Johnny Newman who was <laughs> 14 years in the league. They had Sherman Douglas and I'll never forget going to the game against the Sixers and watching Sherman Douglas try and guard Allen Iverson <laughs> and the guys like three, three rows behind me, all of a sudden, one of the guys just yells out, yo, Sherman Douglas is on skates out there. And then oh, my, that was only my second favorite of that oh. night. Johnny Newman comes in and these kids were like our age. They're like 17. And one of the yeah. kids yells out, yo, Johnny Newman been in the league 25 years. <laughs> 
So, you know, good memories of those teams. Uh, and, and kind of maybe set the table a little bit, even though the one loss record wasn't the same. And they, this was Byron Scott's first year as coach. So they got Scott, they got Rod Thorne, they got Kenyon Martin as their first overall draft choice. And then they're able to make this trade for Kid, which I don't know. I don't know exactly why Kid was so eager to, to get out of Phoenix. I think that. Oh, wait, was Kid in Phoenix at that time? Kid was in Phoenix, yeah. Well, wasn't there a uh, – I can't remember if this is when he had trouble with the drinking before. If this is before or after that came out. I can't remember. You know, that could be right. I think that might have been part of, like, trying to get him into a new, a new atmosphere and a new situation. Yeah. yeah. Because I know he went to Phoenix after the Triple J's broke up in Dallas, right? Uh, yep. Jamal Mashburn. Uh, Jimmy Jackson and and Jason Kidd. I I believe Tony Braxton was involved in that somehow. I still don't know the full story, but <laughs> she uh, she unbroke somebody's heart. Yeah, exactly. I love I love Tony Braxton. I had a huge crush on her growing up. So apparently, you weren't the only one. I... <laughs> so the, I'm reading the like his last year with the with the Suns talks about kid. 2000-2001 season was affected by Kid's personal problems. He was cha- uh, charged with domestic abuse of his wife. Kid took more of the offensive up. Oh, that's just about the offense, but made the all-star game. So, yeah, it was that was a big part of it, personal issues. And they had also acquired Penny Hardaway. That's right. That's right. Expecting that to be them to coexist a little better than they did that year on the not personally but more on the court on the court so, was sarver still the did sarver still own the team back then or i don't know how long he's owned that team i don't know maybe i could look that up but uh yeah let me look, i can look that up being of terrible owners uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they they bring in kid and they yeah. just they end up having this just under byron scott they just have this out of nowhere year in a 102 they go 52 and 30 they're first in the atlantic i don't know where they were in the conference but they were they were seated pretty high they might have been the number one overall seed kids great richard jefferson's coming into his own a young richard jefferson man Mm -hmm. he was he was so good he was so good the kid marbury trade was the day after the draft the night before that they had traded Eddie Griffin to Houston. Oh, man. Richard Jefferson and Jason Collins. And Jason Collins was a role player on those, you know, next couple of teams. Yeah, Jason Collins was a solid, uh, solid big. Jason Collins obviously becomes known as the first openly gay player yeah. in the NBA. And so I think, you know, certainly not a guy who's playing legacy is, is anything to write home about. But this is one of the, he plays in the league forever. He doesn't leave. Abe and I remember him. He played six he played games. for the Wizards. Six he games. <laughs> 12 13. He also has a twin brother who was also in the NBA. Jaron Collins, Jaren right? Collins, yeah. The thing I remember about Jason Collins is two things about 12 years apart. When they made it to the finals that year in 01, or in I guess it would have been 02, they had three centers. They had Collins, they had Todd McCullough. Oh man. And then they had Aaron Williams who was sort of a forward center, but you know, he was for most of the season Aaron Williams was was McCullough's backup. And of the three, and I don't know why they didn't put Kenyon Martin on Shaq more. Maybe they did and I just don't remember. Well they but, did. They did put Kenyon Martin on Shaq. I remember those finals remembering I'm pretty certain that Kenyon I remember Kenyon Martin being the tallest player on the Nets out on the floor. They couldn't mm-hmm. put anybody else out there. 
And I just remember thinking that Collins, of all of them, was the one who did better than maybe not Kenyon, but did Collins did better on the other two than they, either the other two. And, you know, Collins was the rookie, so you didn't necessarily expect him to be able to guard Shaq. And then my other Jason Collins story, or not, not my story, but when he came back after he had come out as gay and, you know, obviously there was all this attention on him playing. One of his first games, he played like eight minutes, scored zero points and fouled out. <laughs> I just remember saying, like, obviously and, and rightfully so, this is going to be eclipsed by the groundbreaking nature of this. But how often does a guy fell out with no points in eight minutes? <laughs> it's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. Was he, that was when he was on the Wizards, but who were they playing that he was able to file out quite so quickly? No, I think it was when he was on the Nets. It was when he oh, came on back the Nets. with oh, the oh, Nets. Oh, okay, when he came back with the Nets. Okay. Yeah, one, yeah. So, yeah, so that, that was an interesting team. and then, But it really just came out of nowhere. I mean, a lot of people thought Kidd should have been the MVP that year. They gave it to Tim Duncan, but I remember people were disappointed. They thought that because Kidd was having – and this was a time when, you know, you really hadn't had a point guard win – an MVP since magic. It had all been, you know, either Jordan or I guess Iverson had won the year before, but he wasn't really a pure point guard or no. Yeah. No, Iverson had won the year before in 01. So they really wanted to, to see people wanted to see kid win the MVP, but it didn't happen. But then they, they go on this run, they go to the finals. And I think that year, I don't think anybody expected them to beat the Lakers and they just oh, got, no. they got steamrolled. They got steamrolled. There was, they had no one to guard Shaq at all. Mm-hmm. Right? It just was not even – it wasn't even a contest, really. I mean, I was expecting them – honestly, I thought they might win one game just because – right, because didn't Philly – I mean, Philly won one game, and I was like, okay, they can at least take one, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Allen Iverson went off for 51 or something like that, and they, they took a game, and I was like, okay. I was like, look, the Nets aren't winning this series. Like, let's just not even think that's happening. A meteor would have to, like, strike the arena, and they would have to, like, play the towel guys uh, for that to be a possibility. But I thought they could win a game, and they did not at all. And I don't even <laughs> remember them being close. Right? I, I'm pretty certain I watched very little of the second half of those games. I, I seem to vaguely remember there being one game where, like, they were all of a sudden it was like you know sometime in the the third quarter, and they were they were hanging with them. It was like, oh, they might you know they might make a game of it. I remember there was one game. Kenyon Martin did go off one game, and I was mm-hmm. th- and when that happened, I was thinking, all right, maybe this is the game they win, and. It just didn't have enough. I feel like Kenyon Martin, like Kenyon Martin scored like 40 some points and no one else could hit a shot. And I think the timing of this was good for them too, because the Knicks, this was the first year the Knicks had missed the playoffs since like, mm-hmm. I think since Patino, since before Patino in like 87. So not that it was a replacement, but for people like me who were NBA fans and wanted to root for a New York team. And all of a sudden you got this Nets team going all the way to the finals. I think that was kind of exciting for, for some people. Andrew didn't agree, I don't think. No, that first year, I liked that team. I think, I think the other thing to point out a couple of things was they played such a different style. They ran so much compared mm-hmm. to what basketball was in that, you know, at that point with a lot of isolations and things like that. They, I remember for a while, they when they would do their introductions, it might've been the next year in the finals, but they played like the beginning of born to run by Springsteen, obviously the Jersey thing, but it, you know, it really matched up with how they played, obviously kid being the impetus behind all of that. And they really did kind of take, I don't want to say the NBA because realistically the 
Kings and the Lakers that year was the, you know, the big series in the Western Conference. But, you know, Kidd also had the thing where he would do the blow and the kiss, the free throw. When he did the free throws, yeah. Son, who was adorable, that was very, you know, it really, his wife and kid really became part of the story as those playoffs went on and as they had that Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics and all that. And this was probably at the height of winning the East meant you were the fifth or sixth best team in the NBA, but it also meant you got to the NBA Finals. You were one of the last teams playing. So Phenomenon is probably a little too strong, but it was a huge national story as the year went on. It was a moment. It was a moment. Good. Now the Nets are really good, and now they're also living up to the hype in the playoffs. It was, you know, it was a force of nature, I guess you could say. And that rivalry with the Celtics really brought a lot home for that. It, and that was an, that was a rivalry that got really nasty because it was the it was the the Nets on the one side, and then this was the Antoine Walker, Paul Pierce, uh, you know, Kenny Anderson, Celtics. That that oh, was yeah. the year. Two thousand two was the year that the Nets blew something like a twenty five point lead in the fourth quarter of a game in the conference finals. And I remember going to one of those games in actually I went to a playoff game. I went to game one of that conference finals in Jersey. And then the mm-hmm. following year in Boston, when I was in college, uh, I went to a, just a regular season net Celtics games and it was intense. Like, you know, yeah. people saying things about kid, people saying things about Pierce. This was an intense, intense rivalry. And obviously, you know, you kind of had the whole New York-Boston angle to the whole thing. But for a couple of years, it's one of those rivalries that kind of faded really quick. But that Nets-Celtics rivalry for those couple of years was was pretty intense. And I think I think when the Celtics traded Walker after the 03 season, it kind of really started to recede. But for those couple of years, it was intense. It was pretty intense because I remember going to a few games when the Nets would come to town. I would, like, and was in college, would go. We would go get cheap tickets and you know, go. And it was, it was, yeah, like you said, intense. Like the atmosphere was very, very, very charged. So obviously, as Abe said, one of their big issues is that they can't guard Shaq in the finals. So they go ahead and they make this trade in the off season. They bring in Dikembe Mutombo and they, they trade Van Horn and McCullough, not McCullough. I'm sorry. Or is it McCullough? Now, who do they trade for Matumbo? McCullough was in that trade. No, they trade. Did, didn't they? Didn't what? Um, wasn't wasn't Matumbo coming from Denver? So that would have been Ken, would have been Martin, right? No, no, Matumbo was coming from Philly. Yeah, the, I have. It oh, right. I'm thinking later. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And Horn and McCullough to the Sixers for Matumbo. I can maybe figure out the exact players. I can look it up. But that that, those- that was the trade. That was, I just looked it up. That was it. It was just those three guys. And the crazy thing is, and the reason I was confused a little bit about McCullough was McCullough had just been on the Sixers. I think him and Van Horn got traded for each other twice. Well, they got traded. Yeah, there's something really strange about the whole McCullough. Because McCullough was on the Iverson team that lost to the Lakers. Then he was on the Nets for a year. So he signed with the Nets. as a Yeah, he was drafted by Philly. He signed as a free agent with the Nets in 01. And they traded and him right back to Philly. traded back to the Philly in a year later. Jeez. And now he is like a huge collector of pinball machines. Good for him. Oh, he that's like, weird. He has one of the largest pinball machine collections in the... I think it was actually... Might have even been located in D.C. I'll have to look that up. It was a very strange... Huh. So this probably is the team that I think was the best. They weren't quite as good in the regular season 
in 0203, but yeah. now Matumbo ends up being hurt for most of the year, and, and Aaron Williams is gone too. So if you want to talk about Jason Collins, Jason Collins sort of ends up being, or I guess Williams is still there, I'm sorry, but but Jason Collins ends up being sort of the the starting center for most of the year. He kind of, when Matumbo gets hurt, he steps into that role. Matumbo only plays in 24 games. He only starts 16. And by the time he makes it to, by the time they make the playoffs, Matumbo's very much sort of in the background. But this 0203 team, this was probably the best team they had. They, they really gave the Spurs a run for their money in the finals. They were leading in the second half of game six. Now, I, I still think they probably lose to San Antonio in game mm-hmm. seven, but to me, this is the team that was the one that was the closest to being able to win a championship. Yeah, this would have been, I mean, this was one of their best, like this was their best team, right? Even yeah. though they had all the injuries, they were, right, they had another year. They were really playing well. I think they matched up reasonably well with, right, with San Antonio at the time. Yeah. Because, right, Tim Duncan is, you know, greatest power forward of all time, but he's no, like, he's not as overpowering as Shaq was. Yeah, exactly. Right, Shaq, like Shaq, that man's a force of nature. It's He's like, okay, he's, you know, seven, three, 300 and some odd pounds and can basically do whatever he wants with you. Tim Duncan had a little more finesse to his game, and so you could actually sort of take him off the block and push him out a little more. But, but I mean, San Antonio is better coached. What are you going to say, right? Well, that's true. And, the, and I think that kids started having issues with Byron Scott yeah. right around this time. Yep. Yeah, and a couple of uh, thoughts on that. So th- that whole finals is weird as well because Jason Kidd is about to be a free agent. That's right. The Nets are considered at the time a small market team, even though they play a small budget, I guess would be a better way to describe it. And not only is he about to be a free agent, people are saying he's probably going to end up on the Spurs. That's right. Playing this team in the finals, the difference sort of in the playoffs this year was the Nets were a two seed, but they got hotter as the playoffs went on. They beat Milwaukee in six in the first round. That was the first year of the seven-game first round. Then they swept Boston in the second round. They swept Detroit in the Eastern Conference Finals. And then they go into this finals against a team that is trying to poach their best player. And also, just as kind of an aside, it's a very different situation, but it the spring of 1994 in New York looms large because the Rangers and Knicks were playing in the finals at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing happened in 2003. At the, at the same time the Nets are playing the Spurs, the Devils... The Devils, yeah. Playing the Anaheim Mighty Ducks in the Stanley Cup Finals, so just a little bit of a. And you know what's interesting about that too is that, and I don't think you'll ever see this again. Both series were on the same network. They were both on ABC. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah I don't think you'll see that ever again. That like was, they divvy them up. Was that ABC's first year with basketball? I think it was ABC's first year with basketball, and they had hockey then too. Because I remember watching the basketball game and they had the hockey announcers come to the, they were, they were all in Jersey and they had them like all on the set in, in the arena at halftime saying, Oh, tomorrow you'll check out the devils in the Stanley cup finals. The next year was the hockey lockout. And after that ESPN and also ABC hasn't had any hockey that's changing next year, but since then they haven't had any hockey. So, 
So they lose to the Spurs, and then everybody thinks Kidd is gone, and they are able to convince Kidd to stay. And one of the reasons they are able to convince him to stay is that they bring in another star to sort of compliment him and try and build the next team. They sign a free agent. Does anybody remember who that was? Looking over the roster, and I have to say it is Alonzo Mourning. Alonzo Mourning. I remember people being pumped when they I mean, made this move. I liked the. I mean, I like. I liked Alonzo Mourning coming out of college. I really enjoyed him. On uh, right, he was drafted by the Charlotte Hornets. Charlotte Hornets, which were just you know top top two all time color scheme. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> uh, he had some great years there. At this point, he was how old, though? That's sort of what I'm trying to remember. He was 33, and he was just coming off missing a whole season with his kidney disease. There you go. That's right. I was wondering if that was when that had happened. Yeah. And so the signing was a little bit risky, but I think it was pretty well understood that he was probably going to be able to play. And then he only played 12 games in that season. And I think that part of it was because of his illness, but I also just remember there being a really strong vibe of he doesn't really want to be here. And so, Oh, so, Oh, here we go. He retired right after they signed him. He retired in November of Oh three. That's right. Kid must've been thrilled. He signs with the nets when he could have gone to San Antonio and he, he does it probably largely on the basis that they're going to bring in morning and then morning retires, but then morning sort of like starts to make a, he starts practicing again with the team in Oh four Oh five. And then, Oh, but okay. Oh, here's the thing. November 24th. I'm thinking October 24th for morning, which is right before the season, November 24th, that explains why he's got 12 games. He played 12 games and then retired. And then he retired. <laughs> That's even tougher. Oh, my God. I mean, was that medical related or was he like it, what? It was, was his it kidneys. It had to be his kidneys, right? It was his kidneys. Yeah. yeah. It was his kidneys. And then he he makes it where he comes back. He starts practicing with them again. And this is this is when he really becomes sort of a malcontent. And it, he starts complaining. They trade Kenyon Martin. He gets upset about that. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of stops putting in much effort on the Nets. And meanwhile, north of the border, Vince Carter has kind of given up on the Raptors. And Literally, so just yeah, he, oh, he was... <laughs> He was really bad. I mean, as bad as whatever morning did, Carter had really sort of... Carter, where he was in a concert or something when he was supposed to be on the road with the team and he didn't go because he was supposedly hurt or something. I feel like I remember that. I mean, he just straight up dogged it until they traded him, right? He was like, trade me, and then proceeded to like play his way out of town, literally. He kind of invented that. Yeah, and the only guy who I can think of who maybe did something similar a little bit in the 90s was Barkley where Barkley made it very clear that he did not want to be in Philly anymore and kind of forced their hand into trading. But, you know, the sort of the James Harden strategy of just going to not put in any effort until they trade me. I remember Carter being kind of one of the first guys that really did that. 
But when they made that trade, that was like a big deal. That was supposed to be sort of, you know, here come the Nets. This is going to be this kid and Carter thing is going to be the next big two. And then it just never really pans out. They make the playoffs the next few years, but they never go past the second round. And then 0304, even after having won or having been to two straight finals, this is when the conflicts between kid and Byron Scott come into play, and then they bring in Lawrence Frank and that guy. <laughs> Lawrence Frank's got an interesting story too, because when because what kid coached the Nets for one year, right? Uh huh. Yep. And Lawrence Frank was his assistant. Yep. And but there it, was, but there were rumors going around that Lawrence Frank was out for his job, and so he would make him. Uh, there was a website that got created. I don't know if you remember this. I do remember like, this. Yeah. <laughs> was like Lawrence Frank's write-up. And so like the, the running joke with kid was like making him go pick up Arby's instead of being an assistant coach or something <laughs> well, so that he wouldn't take his job. They kicked him off the bench after like three yeah. games. They were yeah. like, okay, you're not going to do, you're not going to be on the bench during the games. You're going to like go off and do, you know, write special Special assignments, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it was just the whole thing. And then of course, kid proved to be what he was and he left the team after a year anyway. So the whole era kind of dies out with the signing of morning. And then later with the trade for Carter, especially in what was a weak Eastern conference, I think everybody maybe would have expected them to go a little bit deeper, but it just doesn't happen. And then by this point you start to get Detroit gets really good. Detroit's in the Eastern conference finals every year for like six years in a row or something like that. And, and in the, in the 04 offseason, Kittles and Martin are both traded. Lucius Harris is released. When he did for obviously Van Horn was gone, McCall is gone. So it's really outside a kid who's left from that core kid and Richard Jefferson. I mean, Jefferson is <laughs> like the those two are the only guys left who can actually play still. And I mean, at that point, Kittles had blown out his knee. Yeah. And he wasn't nearly as good as he was and as he had been in the past. And Jeff Van Horn was always underwhelmed, not Jeff Van Horn, Keith Van Horn <laughs> was always underwhelming to me. And he just never, I always thought that he should be better than he was. And he just never was. Yeah, no, I would, I would tend to agree with that. Yeah. And so that's kind of end of it. Um, they have, they really sort of hit the tank in the later years, the later Jersey years. And then I don't know, 12 and 70 and 09, 10, which is I think like their second or third to last year in, in Jersey. And this is, this is the year where God, this 09, 010, 09, 10 team. I'm looking at this team and it is just, Oh wait, is this, no, they didn't. Good Lord. They had Yiji Lan on that team. Uh, That's right. <laughs> the chairman himself. Oh man. But he was, yeah, I'm like, that's a Bucks first round pick, right? I was like, they didn't draft him. They draft. Lawrence Frank is still the coach. Yeah. He starts off 0-16. So they, they lose at least their first 18 games this season because Frank is 0-16. And then this guy, Tom Barice, who they get to replace him is 0-2. He was an assistant coach. Of, so yeah. yeah, he was an assistant coach. They're at least 0-18 to start the season. And so, and then they really don't do much until they get to Brooklyn and their first year in Brooklyn, they're decent. And then they make the trade for Pierce Garnett and Jason Terry. So yeah, I mean, really once the Carter trade is made, they've got a couple of years and then it kind and of, then just, they're irrelevant. They're, they're yeah. essentially irrelevant after that. 
you know, it's interesting to me. And now, I mean, it's just crazy. It's, you know, they got, they got every, every, they got, so they got, they started the season this year with just Durant and Kyrie. Yep. Now they have Harden. Yeah. They have Blake Griffin mm-hmm. and they got Drummond from no, the No, they didn't Pistons. get Drummond. They got, um, who am I thinking of? Lamarcus Aldridge. Oh, they got Aldridge. That's who they got. There was talk of Drummond, but yeah. they got Lamarcus Aldridge instead. That's right. So it'll be interesting to see. I also think it'll be interesting, and this is such an atypical year with all the COVID stuff. You know, there's some fans back. Maybe by the time the NBA finals come around, there'll be more fans back. So yeah. I'm curious to see what sort of the New York attention, obviously a team like that will get national attention. There'll be NESPN and everything. But uh, I'll be curious to see whether this team with all of these big superstars gets any real attention in the New York media when you consider the fact that the the kid teams never really did the even those that year they had Pearson Garnett they re, they never really did Andrew was the year that the Nets had Pearson Garnett was that the year the Knicks were good too was that the year they won 50 games i think it was right or was it the no. year before it was I the year before say, it might have been yeah so it might they really it was just one year with them, but it might. I think it was because they were playing. I want to say that was the year they got to the second. Or no, they lost in the first round that year to the Heat. I want to say, and then the Knicks lost in the second round because I don't think they were both in the second round at the same time. Or no, it was the year after because the Knicks, the Knicks beat the Celtics. That was Garnett and Pierce's last year with the Celtics because that was kind of the end of the Celtics. So they would have been traded the next year. Yeah, this- that was 12-13. You're right. The Knicks beat the Celtics. And then 13-14 yeah. was the year all those guys went to Brooklyn. Yeah, so what I'll say, living in New York at the moment, I mean, I don't live in New York City, but I live in the New York media market. Certainly, if they get to the Eastern Conference Finals, they will be getting a ton of local attention. Mm-hmm. Um, objectively... It'll be July or June. It'll be late June, given the way the season's going this year. You know, in terms of you have baseball. Baseball dominates the market in this city when it's baseball season. So the Yankees and the Mets. By then, you would imagine everyone else, you know, the Rangers will be gone. The Knicks will be gone. Still a couple of weeks away from the start of NFL camps. They will get as much attention as they're capable of getting, and I think more than they even did in the early 2000s because of how much the media market has changed. Yeah. It's not about Mike Lupica's column in the Daily News anymore. This is one thing you I've know, always about- been curious about. Like, uh, right, so when the Nets essentially right, moved to Brooklyn, I was like, all right, I'm sort of one foot out the door, and then I moved to D.C., and I was like, all right, we're definitely, definitely done. Do people consider the Nets to be a New York team now? Or like what are what are the Nets considered in New York? The Nets were always when you when people talk about New York, they say there's nine sports teams. You know, nine pro sports teams. Because they mm. two football, two baseball, the three the Devils have always counted as a New York team. The Nets have always, wherever the Nets have played, they've counted as a New York team. <laughs> the Nets, it's very hard, and I don't want to get too granular with it, like I'm some sort of expert, but the Nets are a New York team, but they are still very much second-class citizens. And 
I know what the Knicks are. I know if the Knicks were nine and 60 this year, there might be a little bit of more, but I think, I think the Nets probably get a lot more national attention than they do local attention right now because they play in Brooklyn, they're a New York team, but it's also not a team that's come together that people have been watching for years. They've been watching these guys for years, but on other teams. So there's almost no reason to cover them from a local angle. They just cover them from a national angle. And they've also tried so hard to differentiate themselves from every other sports team by being borough specific. So if the Nets win a championship this year, God forbid, That I will guarantee, and, and let's say COVID is gone. Let's take COVID out of the equation for a second. I guarantee you the parade will not be down the Canyon of Heroes in Manhattan. The It'll be a Brooklyn thing. Nets will want to have it in Brooklyn. So I see. It's a hybrid. It's weird. They're certainly more popular than you know the Devils were when the Devils were winning championships and all of that. But radio stations around here do say if we open up the phones and say we're going to take calls about the two local basketball teams, eight to ten of those calls are about the Knicks. Yeah. Rightfully or wrongly, whatever that proves, but anecdotally that is still this tenor of the, the town in terms of basketball and the you know fandom. Durant probably got a lot more play for his Twitter beef with uh, Michael Rappaport. Rappaport. By the time this airs, it'll be over a month ago. But you know, as we're recording, it's recent than anything that any one net has done on the court, you know, and then part of that's just the NBA landscape, but there's really not a, such a thing as like, Oh, well the nets have a big game tonight. And I think like Andrew said, that probably won't roll out until the conference finals. So I'm very curious to, so would be very curious to sort of do the counterfactual of if this team was around two years ago before COVID what would it be like? But so much of the media landscape has changed because of COVID. So there's kind of like, there's, there's two variables there. But yeah, I, I, my other question sort of that I, I don't know the answer to is I wonder who goes to the games because I feel like Knicks have a lot of people in normal times, you know, people coming in from like where we're from or from Long Island, you know, they take yeah. the train right in, they go to the game. But then it's also like the thing to do business people and people get in boxes or they have company seats. I'm curious who goes to the Brooklyn Nets games. My suspicion is that it's probably a lot of New Yorkers who live, who come from other cities, who go to see their teams play. Yeah. Sort of like what we get with the Nationals. I lo- I always used to say, you can tell who the Nationals are playing that weekend just by riding the Metro at rush hour on a Friday. It's very clear. So my guess is that's a part of it too with the Nets. And I think there's a lot of people who live in New York who, if they're going to pick a team, they've picked the Nets. They're not from New York. You know, they might have come in with no prior allegiances or they might have come in with a team. Now, obviously, if you're a Celtics fan or, a you know, a Sixers fan or something else, but if, if you moved to New York from Indiana and you were a Pacers fan, but only nominally or an Orlando Magic fan or something, I think a lot of those people are getting on the Nets, but... And not to me, you know, I know this wasn't the focus of the podcast, but I think by virtue of the way they've built this team, which is smart, but it's not, I think there's a lot, and it's probably also a factor of the Knicks being better this year. There's not a lot of people who are like, I couldn't take it anymore with the Knicks and now I'm a Nets fan. There are some. Yeah, that's, I, 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 I just don't see that. Yeah. Like being a huge factor. I am curious to what happens after 
right? I, I just don't see the three, right? I don't see Durant, Harden, or Kyrie there long term. So like what, like you said, that's it's smart to have those big names to like draw fans there now, but when they're gone, what do they have? And modern sports are like that in a lot of ways where it's always a different team every year, but you're, you're both right. They keep reinventing themselves so much. It's like, even since they've, since they've been in Brooklyn, it was like they had the Joe Johnson year and then they had the, the, the Pierce Allen and, or the, I keep saying Allen, the Pierce Garnett year. And then they had something else. And it was Brooke Lopez was big. And then a couple of years ago, they finally started with some of these guys, you know, D'Angelo Russell and some of these guys, it was, you know, this up and coming team. And now it's a totally different thing. It's the sort of, it's the new heat where everybody just goes there, yeah. you know. I mean, it's one thing to root for laundry, but usually there's like at least one guy on the team they yeah. draft, right? And that's, I think, a lot of what they lost with all the trades they made this year. So, all right, well, this was a great conversation, a topic that we hadn't really delved into too much, uh, really, you know, like I said, not much at all in our first uh, 25 or so episodes. I'd like to thank Abe for joining us. Did you have anything to add before we wrapped it up? Uh, no, but we should definitely do this for the Wizards as well because there's some there's some great stuff there. <laughs> yeah, let, no, let's absolutely do that. We will absolutely do that at some point in the in the coming months. Andrew, anything from you? No, if we do that episode, we should have an actual wizard on as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll grow my beard out and die. That's white. right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, for Abe Evansell, our guest, thank you so much for joining us. And Andrew and I will be back again with another exciting sports topic next time around. Until that time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.